0: Yeah, as Ken mentioned, we getting to partner with Pastor Cuco to go down to Mexico has been so fun over the last year. We've already had three trips down there, and we are going to be doing these more often because we're building a relationship. That's the thing that excites me. When we do missions, oftentimes you go to some place, you do it one time, you don't really ever see the same people again, and you come home. This is building a relationship with somebody, with Pastor Cuco and his church down there, and it is really, really fun to see. We're going to be going back down in October 10th. Let me just briefly tell you what we're going to be doing there. Um, He has been ministering for the last 18 months to this men's rehabilitation center where guys are finding not only their sobriety, but finding Jesus Christ. And it's actually a Catholic um, rehabilitation center, but they have allowed him, a Protestant Christian, to come in and share the gospel message. And he has become the chaplain, the pastor to that rehabilitation center. But he recognizes that there are hundreds more throughout Mexico that he's not able to reach. And so rather than trying to be at lots of different ones and kind of spreading himself a mile wide and only being able to go an inch deep, he's decided, I want to call my other pastors in Mexico to begin adopting rehabilitation centers next to them. So in October... We are going to facilitate the first training. He's going to invite over 100 pastors and 100 directors from rehabilitation centers from all over Mexico to come together into Tijuana. We get to come down and support Pastor Cuco as the church that is his sister church supporting him from the states. We're going to go down and help feed these pastors and these directors breakfast as he does the training. I'm sure that um, Don will be in his pirate costume since he's found himself. And then at the end of the day, we'll, go, we'll get to go back to the rehabilitation center and see our friends there and all that. So that's the plan at this point. And I would encourage you to go down. It is, it is a wonderful way to get outside of your comfort zone and see God work. Um, and so also, I was just thinking this week, since I was down in Mexico, I was thinking a little bit about um, some of the other trips that my wife and I have done, getting out of the country. And it, I have found that uh, surprisingly Americans don't necessarily have the best uh, reputation uh, abroad, you know, and, and it's understandable if you've ever spent a little bit of time outside of the country because, you know, the Americans, they're the ones climbing over the railings into sacred spaces because they want to get a better picture. They're the ones who are getting mad at their waiter because they don't speak English, even though they're in a foreign country. And so they speak louder and slower as if the problem is the waiter's eardrums, not the fact that they speak a different language. And I would love to throw some stones at people like that, but I am just as guilty as anybody else. I I remember a time when Kathy and I were traveling in Italy and we go to a supermarket and Italy is a little bit different than America in that... Uh, they do things a little bit differently. So we get up to the front of the line. It had already been about a 20-minute wait because there was only one checkout stand, and there were probably 20 people behind us by the time we get up to the front, and I bring all of my stuff forward. And and the woman at the checkout counter gets kind of like this weird look on her face and starts handing me bags of produce back. Apples, you know, other stuff. And I'm holding on to the lettuce and carrots and apples, kind of like, what do I do with this? And then somebody behind us goes... You have to weigh it and tag it when you bag it, and then you come to the... Sorry. So I go run over, and I try to figure it out, and it takes me probably about 10 minutes to figure this out and tag everything, because all the instructions were in Italian. Finally figure it out, come back to the line. As I'm walking up, I realize that not a single person has been waited on while I was there. She had been waiting for me the entire time for like 10 minutes, and now the line is probably twice as long as it was, and everybody's watching me as I do this long walk of shame. And I hand her my bags, and I'm not making eye contact with anybody, and Kathy's been standing there in the line the whole time, so she's embarrassed. We pay for our stuff, thankfully in euros, not in American dollars, so we're not, like, broadcasting where we're from. And then I just beeline for the closest exit I can find, because I just want to get out of there. Paying no attention to the big red letters across the thing that say emergency exit, because, again, it's written... (laughs) It's written in Italian. And so I bust right through the emergency exit. All of the sirens start going off in the store. And once again, everybody's attention is diverted onto us. And I just hang my head. And it it felt like I was in National Lampoon's Italian vacation, right? And I kid you not, there's a family that's entering into the supermarket at that time through the correct exit or an entrance. And the guy looks over at me and goes, you're from America, eh? So I want to personally apologize for my role in perpetuating this negative stereotype about Americans abroad, but I have to say I'm not alone, okay? It is not just me that's done this. In fact, I was reading about this this week. A couple months ago, there was a family from Illinois that were visiting Wales, and Wales, for those of you who were raised in the American education system where we don't ever look at a map, Wales is part of the British Isle. It's on the west side, just west of England, and um, Russell, am I right on that one? Okay, good. So, that's where whales are. They're visiting whales, and while they were there, they rented a car, and they heard that there was this beautiful Cistercian Monks Monastery. Beautiful place, nice grounds, picturesque, and they said, we want to visit that. And so they plugged the coordinates into their GPS navigation, got in their little rental vehicle, and started driving. Never realizing that this little monastery is on an island half a mile from shore. But... The GPS plotted a course, so they're going to drive there, by golly. And so they started... Can we throw the the picture up there? The first one? One of the islands? There you go. So this is the island about a half a mile offshore of the Cistercian monks, and that's where they were going to get some pictures. Beautiful place. So they start driving, following the, the navigation in their GPS... You would have think that the, you, you might have thought that they would figure it out by the time that they get to the end of the road and it turns into sand and all of that's in front of them from there is water. But they just kept driving. So they just bumped their car up onto the sand and kept driving. And they made it about 100 or 200 yards before this happened and they got themselves totally stuck in the sand, wasn't moving, and thankfully there were some nice beachgoers who spent three hours digging them out and pulling their car back to the pavement so they could keep going. Now I just wonder though, what would have happened if that car didn't get stuck in the sand. And they were following their GPS all the way to the water's edge and now it's like, keep going straight. And they're like would they have driven into the water? Maybe. They're Americans, right? <laughs> and I share that that story for a couple of reasons. First off, because it makes me feel a lot better about my bumbling abroad. But the second reason I share that is because this is human nature, for us to, to rely on things to get us places we want to go that they were never intended to get us there. And in fact, in a lot of ways, that's the same thing that Paul is talking about throughout the book of Romans, but particularly chapters 9 through 11, where he's writing to the um, Jewish Christians who have placed so much of their emphasis, so much of their attention on the law, thinking that the law, like that GPS navigation unit, can get them to where they want to go, namely to a relationship with their creator and God. They thought that the law could take them to righteousness, but it was never designed to do that. In fact, what it was designed to do was show them their desperate dependence on God to rescue them. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. In fact, while you're turning there, I'm just going to read the last couple of verses of chapter 9 because in a lot of ways the thoughts that he's going to talk about in 10 are a continuation of chapter 9. He writes this, What shall we say then? We'll say that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way to righteousness haven't attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as it were, but by works they stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, for that couple that were in Wales, they thought that because the GPS unit showed them where they needed to go, they thought that it could take them there. And they thought that they could drive there by their own strength. Little did they know that the only way to get out to that island is via a ferry boat, which is near where they, you know, got stuck in the sand. But the only way to get there is to get on that ferry boat and to allow the captain to take them where they could never get themselves. And for the people of Israel, they rejected the gospel message because they relied on the law. They relied on their own energy, their own abilities, never realizing that there was this massive gulf called their sin nature that stood between them and their destination. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone, namely Jesus Christ and the grace that he bought and paid for with his death on the cross. They stumbled over that because they could not fathom God rescuing us us in that way. And so now Paul will continue in chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole thing in its entirety, and then we'll go back line by line and look at that. And I'm going to just warn you up front. It's going to seem really thick and really hard to understand because Paul packs this chapter full of Old Testament references, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters... My heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites is that they might be saved. My prayer is for the Israelites that they might be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness by the law in this way. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that's bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. All scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How, then, can they call on the one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. About as clear as mud. And I know that there are some of you going, okay, I I followed a little bit of that in there. The problem is, we are not nearly as familiar with the Old Testament. What the Jews would have understood as their scripture, we're not nearly as familiar with that As the Jews would have been. Do you realize that in that day and age. A Jewish child that was being raised by the age of nine. Would have memorized the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, So they would have all of that memorized. And by the age of 14 if they continued in their studies. They would literally have memorized the entire Old Testament. Which is pretty astounding to me. But because of that. Because of the amount of time and their, just their ability to retain that. I, I'm proud of Ethan for the fact that he memorized his mom and dad's cell phone numbers. Right? Just in case he gets lost, call one of those two numbers and somebody will probably answer. But they had this thing memorized. And so when they are hearing Paul speak, they are hearing so many references that they're familiar with. same, same way that if somebody were to talk today and they would stand up here and they're referencing the matrix or something like that, you'd be like, oh yeah, I totally know. Red pill, blue pill, gotcha you know, and you start filling in the blanks. Well, we being several thousand years removed don't fill in the blanks quite as easily. And so we read this and we don't understand what he's referencing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back through this and I'm going to begin to pull out a couple of the most pertinent of those verses. There's so many of them. I can't do all of them, but I'm going to go back to a couple of them and I'm going to show and we're going to read them in context so you can begin to see what he's saying. All right. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 10. First off, one of the arguments that people leveled against Paul, because he was having such a a powerful ministry to the Gentiles, which is anybody who's not Jewish, by the way. A Gentile simply means that you're not of Jewish descent. And he was having remarkable um, fruit being produced by him sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. They were coming in droves to Jesus Christ. And people began to say, well, Paul, you're against the Jews. You are totally for the Gentiles. And Paul, who was Jewish himself, wanted to first up front just say that's not true at all. So he says in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish it on their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. And Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, if there was ever anybody who could understand the Jewish plight of misplaced zeal, it was Paul. Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. He had been raised as a Pharisee, trained by one of the greatest Pharisees of their generation, and he was zealous for God. So zealous, in fact, that when he began to see this little sect of people that followed Jesus Christ and were declaring Him to be the Messiah and the Son of God and the way to true righteousness, He persecuted them. He thought that they were twisting the Old Testament Scriptures. He thought that they were treating Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with disrespect. And so He went out of His way to silence them, going so far as to be the one presiding over the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was there giving his approval to the people killing Stephen. And after that, he went and he got letters from the the major Pharisees saying, May I represent you in going and clamping down on this errant theology called Christianity. They said, Absolutely. So he's on his way to Damascus to go persecute some more Christians. And Jesus himself appears to Paul. There's a bright light in the sky. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, he blinded Saul so that he could begin to see the light and begin to see the truth. And Saul was transformed into a man that was, went from being the greatest opponent of the good news to being the greatest proponent for it. He became Paul, whom we know as the writer of over half of the New Testament. This was a man who zealously persecuted Christ until he recognized that Christ was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world. And so Paul can understand misplaced zeal, and it breaks his heart because he realizes that his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith are stumbling over the same stone that he was stumbling over, are misunderstanding who Jesus was. They see him as an enemy of God, not as the Son of God. And so Paul then goes on after saying that Jesus Christ is actually the fulfillment of the law, not an obstacle to it. Not somebody who's doing away with the law, but the one who came to fulfill it in completion. He goes on to then juxtapose or to compare the two different approaches to God. One, that is by following the law and trying to be really good, and the other, by submission to Jesus' death on the cross, accepting that gift of grace through faith and being saved because God does it rather than us do it. And he's going to point to two different Old Testament passages to do it. So let's look at the first one, verse 5. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that you try to attain through the law. And he does so by going back to Leviticus chapter 18. You don't have to turn here, but let me just read this really quickly. He's actually uh, referencing Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 just to give you the context. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. The land of Canaan was the promised land. You must not... O- I'm sorry. Do not follow their practices. Rather, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. Keep, your de- keep my decrees and laws for... And this is the part that he quotes... In our passage today. For the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Now here's what God meant when he said that to the Israelites. He wasn't saying obey these things so I will choose you as a people. Just the opposite. He was saying I have chosen you as my people. I've chosen to do that. So because of that, in light of that, obey my teaching. But they flipped it around. They thought that God would choose them if they obeyed rather than they obeyed because he chose. And in light of that, we begin to recognize that their obedience was a response to God's choosing as opposed to being a prerequisite to it. They didn't earn God's choosing them. He unilaterally did that. But they flipped it. And they put all the onus on themselves they began to look to the law as the ladder to which they tried to approach Jesus Christ, uh, the way that they tried to approach their father. If we were to use the metaphor of this poor couple trying to cross the, the ocean to get to an island, in a lot of ways they tried to use their own effort as like a little rickety bridge that they could try to cross over the water by their own strength. And that bridge only held up by their obedience to the law and the only way it would stay together is if they did it perfectly. But, of course, we all have this sin nature. Nobody is without fault. Nobody can do it perfectly by our own strength. And God knows that. And the moment that they disobeyed, that bridge would fall and they would drown. God said, I never expected you to do that on your own strength. The law was never put in place to provide a bridge that you could cross over the waters by your own efforts. Rather, the law was put there to show you your inability to do it. Yes, to point a direction. This is where I'm at. This is the type of lifestyle I want you to live. But I know you can't do that perfectly. It shines a spotlight on your imperfections and your inabilities to live righteously. Therefore, it'll drive you into my arms so that I can do what you never could do. So the second approach, first is the law, it's all on us. The only way that we attain righteousness is for us to live by these things, to obey them perfectly. But the righteousness that is by faith, this is verse 6, says don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the deep that is to bring Christ up now he's referencing a, a passage in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 30 again i'm going to read this one it's Deuteronomy 30:11 and on and this is moses writing to the people basically being a voice box for god telling them about about why it's important for them to submit to God's Word and how God's Word and His teaching are available to them. Verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, well, who will ascend into heaven to get it and to proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, well, who's going to cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? when they translated the old testament from the hebrew into to greek actually the way that they translated it in the septuagint they changed that who will go across the sea to who will go into the depths because the word in greek is the same the depths or the distance and so paul is referencing and using that idea of who will go into the depths as a metaphor for bringing christ up from the dead but he continues in verse 13 or in verse 14 no The word isn't across the sea. It isn't up in heaven that somebody has to go get it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart so that you may obey it. Righteousness is not something that's beyond you. And Paul points directly to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. One that even a nine-year-old would have memorized. And he now repackages it, repurposes it to point directly to Christ. And he says, what... This is what the righteousness that is by faith says. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, meaning to try to bring Christ down and make him available to us. Or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, God has already done this. He already sent Jesus from heaven to us. He already raised him from the dead. But this is what the Word says. The Word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. This is what we proclaim. It is not beyond us. Our righteousness is not something that we have to try to strive for. It's already available to us. We proclaim this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And by the way, this isn't just for the Gentiles. This isn't just for the Jews, God's chosen people. This is for everybody. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter where you were raised. It doesn't matter your affluence or your education level, how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. This is available to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Verse 11, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Of course, in order for us to be saved, we need to know the truth. We need to be able to accept the gospel message. And so Paul addresses the fact that people need to hear it. Verse 14, how then... Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul is basically saying, hey, listen, we recognize they need to hear the good news, hear the message before they can respond to it. And we often point to this as a reminder that we need to be intentional about going and sharing the gospel message, right? That's precisely what we did last weekend going down to Mexico, going and helping Pastor Cuco to share the good news so that we could have 20 or 30 guys at that rehabilitation center, either for the first or probably the 30th time, say, yes, I'm in, I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and amen to that. But that's not what Paul is pointing at right here. He's not saying this needs to happen. He's saying God has already done this. In fact, I, Paul, am one of the people that God has sent. I'm one of those people who has been sent to share the good news so that people can begin to respond and believe in their heart and be saved. But this raises a really thorny question of, well, then why aren't the Jews responding? The Gentiles are in droves, but the Jews are not. Why not? Because here's how Paul would approach it. It wasn't that he was just going to Gentiles. Every city that Paul went to, he began in the synagogue, in in the Jewish place of worship. And he would go there and he would share the gospel message. He would open up the Old Testament. And he would point to passages that point to Jesus Christ. And he would reason with them. But time and again, in city after city, the Jews would typically scoff. Now, there were certainly some of them that, that bent to knee and said, I believe and I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But the vast majority of them rejected the gospel message. And so after having preached in the synagogue, Paul would go out into the streets. He made tents as an occupation, although his vocation, his calling was to share the good news. And so as he's making tents, he would begin to share in, in, you know, to the people he was making tents with, or the people who were right across the way where he was selling the tents, he would share the good news with them. That's Priscilla and Aquila we read about. They were people who were also there, and he just had shared the message with them as he was making tents. And they became believers, and they became some leaders elsewhere. And the Gentiles responded in droves. And we begin to ask, well, why did they respond and the others didn't? And Paul laments the same thing here in the latter half of chapter 10. Verse 16, he says, not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. It's been shared with them. We've already gone out, but not all of them accepted that. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Again, he's just pointing to the Old Testament saying, look at." This has been kind of... God has been lamenting this for a long, long time. Who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did the Jews not hear it? Of course they did. Because our voice has gone out into all of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. It's not literally like every people group has been doing it. He's quoting the Old Testament again, but he's simply saying, listen, we have shared this message already and they rejected it. So again, I asked, did Israel not understand the message? Was it just that it was confusing? And And Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Why is Paul quoting so much of the Old Testament? Because his point here is to show that God, this isn't a surprise to God. It's to show that this, this grace through faith was always God's plan to begin with. It's not like he said, hey, here's the law. This is how you're going to attain your righteousness. I want you to build a bridge across the ocean so you can drive out to me. The law was given to shine a spotlight on our inability to live righteously so that it would drive us into the arms of the Savior. God, God's plan A was Jesus Christ. It wasn't a plan B. And Paul is making that clear by pointing to so many different passages in the Old Testament to just kind of paint a picture of, listen, this has always been God's plan. And I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, in other words, the Gentiles. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. In the next chapter, he's going to go even deeper into that. How the people of Israel, although they've rejected God, are still God's people and he hasn't rejected them. And he's actually using the Gentiles' response to kind of draw their hearts so ultimately they will bend a knee to him and they will be saved as a nation. They're not doing it now. And so it's opening the door for all these Gentiles to come in, but eventually God will redeem his people. So right now... He's making them envious. And then he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 52. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, Isaiah said, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Now I have to ask right there, why were the Israelites so stinking obstinate? Why were they so resistant To the gospel message, while the Gentiles embraced it so readily. And there's a lot of answers. In fact, in chapter 11, Paul gets into a little bit more of it. But I want to give you one reason. And that is that we, as individuals, as humanity, are very averse to change. When we become used to something, when we get raised up in something, when we learn something, that becomes our comfort zone, and it's very, very difficult for us to move beyond it. That's why when I used to coach water polo, and the kids would try to put their hand on the top of the ball to pick it up, I'd be like, don't pick the ball up on top. Well, because the problem is if they push the ball underwater, uh, it's a turnover. You don't really care. (laughs) I care, and uh, with the heat, I wish I was still playing. So I would teach them, you pick the ball up underneath. Well, it's just practice. There's nobody around me. Yes, but it's muscle memory. And if you learn to do this in practice, you will do this in the game. The same reason that when I'm coaching this little basketball team with Ethan and some of his friends, Patrick Stack and others, I'm like, guys... I know you like to take three-pointers. It is in your DNA to take three-pointers, but God has designed you to be post players. So get down low and shoot low. Yes, maybe you made like three out of 20 three-point shots. Great job. But you're a much higher percentage shooter from inside. God has designed you to be a rhino. You don't need to be way outside, lofting those up. Leave those to other people who will get broken when they try to come down low. Practice what God has designed you for. (laughs) or I might say, okay, you know, just to kind of show our natural propensity to be resistant to change. Those of you who are in your 60s, 70s and 80s, probably from a higher percentage, if you were to pull out the cell phones, if you carry a cell phone at all, your cell phone may more likely be a flip phone and it still has those button things on it that my generation doesn't understand what to do with anymore, right? Right? And you might be thinking, well, I don't need one of those smartphones, because quite honestly, I don't need GPS. I memorize the streets in Costa Mesa. I know how to get around. And the only type of email, the only type of mail that really matters is when I have to put a stamp on it. And social networking, my idea of social networking is talking to somebody face to face. So I don't need one of those phones that does all of these other things, because quite honestly, it costs too much, and it's a distraction. On the flip side, those of you who are probably 40 and below, I would be surprised if there's a single one of you in here who does not have a smartphone. Why? Because we have no idea how to get around without it. We don't even have our best friends, our parents, or our, our spouse's phone number memorized anymore. It's in the phone. And if we need to figure something, they did a study actually, and this is hilarious. They did a study about how we learn and we've actually changed how we learn. We used to learn by when we read something, it would get stored in our brain. Now, when we read something, particularly online, now our brains store how to find that information. We don't even decide, we don't even remember the information anymore. We remember how to get to it, which is why we feel so naked and alone and lost when we leave our phone somewhere because that that is our brain. And without our brain, we're lost. So to ask a 20- or a 30-year-old to give up their, their smartphone and go back to an analog phone is like asking them to stop breathing, asking them to cut off one of their arms. I know I'm speaking in broad generalities, but, you know, you get the idea here. The older we get, the more kind of set in, this is how it's done, and I don't need to change just for change's sake. Yes, that might be exciting for some of those younger kids, but that's not interesting to me. But that's not not imperative for me to live my life. And the Jews had been raised from a very early age to understand that you are saved by your obedience to the law. Now, that wasn't God's intention for them to think that, but that's how they began to interpret the law. That's how the Pharisees began to teach it. The law is our lifeblood. It is the bridge with which we can cross ourselves over into righteousness. We as a people will be saved by our strict adherence to the law. In fact, they honestly believed that if all of the people of Israel would perfectly keep one Sabbath day, that God would send the Messiah. That was a teaching. And so they were hyper-vigilant about the law. In fact, they added rule upon rule upon rule around the law kind of like we put gates and fences around pools to keep young ones from accidentally wandering in to the pool and drowning. And so when Paul begins to say, no, 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 the law was never intended to be the way to righteousness. In fact, it was simply to point you back to Jesus Christ because God from the very beginning is intended to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. They scoffed at it. They were unwilling to let go of the law. Jesus actually recognized this fact, by the way. When he was teaching, one of the things he taught about was the, wine, the old wine, new wine, and wineskins. He said, listen, with new wine, you don't stick new wine in old wineskins because it will literally burst the old wineskins that are kind of old and crusty and unable to move. And the new wine is effervescent and it will literally burst the old wineskin. And then at the end of that teaching in Luke, he said this, Anyone who has tasted the old wine will not like the new wine. In fact, they'll say the old wine is better. He was talking about the Jews' dependence on the law and their approach to God. For them, the law was the old wine. It was familiar. It was what they knew. And they were comfortable with it. Even if they couldn't do it perfectly. The old wine was familiar. And all of a sudden, here's this new wine, this, new, this seemingly new teaching of you cannot do this by your own strength, but God has done it for you, and they rejected it. Now, I, thanks, but I'm going to go ahead and r- hold on to what I know to, to be the approach that my fathers and my father's fathers did. I'm going to do it by my own strength. Now, the Gentiles, in comparison... They had always felt like they were on the outside looking in. They had always felt like the God was the God of the Jews. And the only way that we can ever even get near him is to submit to this legalism that we see the Jews preaching. And they are constantly looking at us as interlopers. Like we don't belong. But now, Paul, you're telling us that God loves us too and that he will free us from our sin, irrespective of who our forefathers were? I'm in. I'll take it. A free ride, please. I love that. And so they embraced the gospel message. Here's the point that Paul is getting at. We as a people are a lot like that couple in Wales. Trying to drive to an island that we could never possibly drive to on our own strength. And I wonder sometimes, because because he says, how are we saved? We are saved by believing in our hearts that Jesus died for us and confessing with our lips that he is our Lord and Savior. That's how we're saved, right? And when we talk about belief, a lot of times we talk about belief as if it's intellectual understanding. I believe that Jesus died for me, that he raised from the dead, that he's the Son of God. I believe those things. And then we go on with our lives as if we are still the captains of our own ship. That would be tantamount to that couple going, you know what, we are aware that there is a ferry boat that will take people to the island. But we also believe that this GPS will lead us to where we want to go and we can drive there. And quite honestly, we don't want to pay the fare to get on that boat. And we don't want to have to be dependent on their ferry schedules of when they depart and when they come back. So thanks, but we're going to go ahead and drive there. That is the type of belief we tend to bandy about. But it's not. we are not saved by intellectual belief alone. Even the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder because they are not willing to bend a knee to Him. Because true belief, belief that transforms our heart and changes the trajectory of our eternal life, is a belief that says, I recognize that He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, He is the only way to the Father and so I am going to submit my life to him, or as James put it, you want to show me your, or you want to tell me about your faith? I will show you my faith by my actions. Because faith without works, faith without a response, is dead. It's empty. It's at best questionable. And guys, in a country, where up, up until just a few months ago, many people probably felt this is a Christian nation where we submit to God and God we trust. And so the fence of calling yourself a Christ follower just because it's trendy was really wide. And there were lots of people who were saying, I'm a believer. But it didn't actually transfer into any sort of lifestyle changes. They did not actually, they choose maybe Jesus as Savior. I'll pray a prayer and that'll be that. And then I'll go on with my my life because I got my ticket to heaven punched. But I'm going to continue to to be the captain of my ship here and now because quite honestly, I'm not ready to kind of relinquish that. So he can be my Savior, but I don't really want him as my Lord. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we can't accept Jesus in that way. To accept Him as our Savior means that we accept Him as our Lord. True belief means I will bend a knee to you and you will be the one in whom I place my dependence, not on my own strength. Am I making sense here? Because this is really crucial. Because I read passages where Jesus warned people, listen, on that day, the day of judgment, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we go down to Mexico and share our faith with other people. Didn't we tithe a couple of times? Didn't we show up at church at least a couple of times a month? Didn't we pray at meals most of the time? And they'll look at us and they say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because when the fence is wide and we can say, Jesus is my Lord, and it doesn't really cost us anything, but it would cost us something to say, you can be my Lord, so I'm actually going to submit my life. Then there's a lot of people who just kind of coast. And that's that idea of cheap grace. But as, as it's becoming less and less comfortable in our country, as that fence is getting thinner, and there's actually persecution attached to saying yes to Jesus Christ. Although we lament it, and although it breaks my heart to see some of the leaders in our country going in that direction, and some of my friends that I've grown up with, even gone to church with, embracing and celebrating some of these really destructive choices I, seeing, I see our country making. As that fence is getting thinner and thinner, and people who say, I'm a Christ follower, are actually being persecuted for their faith, then it is going to force us to begin to count the cost. And that's important because Jesus warned people listen, don't just say, hey, I'm in. You should be like a guy who's about to go into battle. And say, do I have with my army enough to be able to overcome the enemy? Count the cost. Or before you build a house, or before you buy a house, sit down and do the numbers to figure out if you can actually afford it. And far too often we make emotional decisions for Jesus. Yay, that song was awesome. Yeah, I want to pray the prayer. But then we walk out. And we're inundated by the world. And that's it. And the weeds of the concerns of our life, come and choke out our fledgling faith. So, all that to say this. Belief, that is truly belief, is a belief that says, I am going to put my words into action. It is a belief that says, I recognize that I am not the captain of my ship. I recognize that I cannot drive across my sin nature, that gulf that divides me from my Father in heaven and attain righteousness by my own strength. Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so I am willing, I choose, to place my life in His hands and allow Him to carry me where my own feet could never take me. And if that's you, if you recognize perhaps that you have been like that couple, that you've been like me in a lot of ways, trying to clean yourself up, trying to earn God's love, as if we ever had to earn it. Trying to be good enough so that He will accept us. Or maybe you just here because you were kind of dragged here this morning and you're at that point where you go, I don't even think God wants anything to do with me. I have fallen too far, wandered too distant from Him, and I feel covered like that prodigal son. I feel covered in the muck of the mire in which I find myself. I have been gorging myself on the pig slop too long and I don't think God wants anything to do with me if that's you then this morning the invitation is simply to stop striving stop trying stop trying to build a bridge to your righteousness stop trying to earn your way into God's good favor and rest in it because you are his son you are his daughter created in his image And he has already done everything. He has already made a way for you to be made righteous. And and that way is Jesus Christ, who died for you. And although we are not... Yesterday, I got to to preside over this item as wedding. Cheryl and John, who are spending their honeymoon with us today, which we're very stoked that you guys are here. Very excited. And yesterday, both of them shared some vows with one another that were a declaration of a decision that they'd made in their hearts months prior. And that decision that they'd made in their heart is, for better or for worse, in good seasons and hard ones, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I choose to stand beside you. Not because it's comfortable, not because I think it's going to be easy, but because I choose you. And those vows that they shared were a fruit, an outgrowth of a decision that they had already made and one that they are resting in. And the challenge I gave to them is this is not just a momentary thing. This is for life because we make a covenant with one another. It's not a contract. A contract can be torn up when one or both parties are done with it. A covenant is irrevocable. It's not something that you can dismiss. That's why Jesus said, What God has united, no man has the authority to separate. You might go see a judge and have your marriage annulled. But in God's eyes, you're still married. And they made a covenant yesterday with one another. And this prayer that I'm about to lead any of you who choose to do so in is simply a response to God's invitation. It is an outgrowth, but it is not the finish line. If anything, like the Zaidamas, it is the beginning of their marriage. And they're going to learn in the days and weeks ahead what it means to be married. And sometimes it's not going to be easy. But as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And their lives are going to sharpen one another. And when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ and we say, I want you to be the Lord of my life, all of a sudden we're going to realize how much of ourselves don't want to submit and yet we're called to submit anyway. So, if you bow your heads with me, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And whether you have said this 20 times or you've never said it at all, I'm going to invite you to speak it out loud if you mean it. And I'm including anybody who this fits for. Jesus. Jesus. I need you. I recognize that I have sinned. I recognize that I will sin. And I cannot save myself. God, you created me to be holy. And I cannot do that by my own strength. So, Jesus, I need you. Would you come into my life? Holy Spirit, would you fill me up? Jesus, I accept the gift that you bought and paid for with your blood. Your death for my life. And now I submit my life to you. Thank you for being my Savior. Would you also be my Lord? I want to submit. Help me in my inability to submit. So Jesus, I give my life to you. In your holy name. Amen. All right. And we do life, by the way, as a church. We continue to meet weekly. We continue to meet in small groups because we recognize that we are all on a journey. Justification happens when Jesus' blood washes us clean. But we are all being set apart throughout our life, and that's a sanctification process, one that is going to happen throughout our lives, and we're called to do this together. So I'm really, really grateful that we get to be family and we get to do life together. If you made that decision for the very first time, then I would encourage you to tell somebody else. Come and talk to myself or to Lee. Because when we say yes to Jesus, we slap a big target on our backs, And the enemy loves to come around and try to take down our faith, take down our hope that we find in him. So do not try to do this by yourself. All right, let's worship together.